0: Hello and welcome back to The
1: Conversation Weekly.
2: This week, we look at the origins and history of the Taliban.
1: Displacement, the experience of being refugees, the exploitation by these madrasas. The Taliban will be born out of this conflation of forces.
0: Also, we explore what's happened over the last 20 years that allowed the Taliban to retake control of most of Afghanistan.
3: The February 2020 agreement which the United States signed with the Taliban, really is responsible for the speed to which the Afghan government disintegrated.
2: I'm Gemma Ware this week in Paris. And I'm Dan Marino in
0: San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts.
3: Afghans are thronging
1: to Kabul's airport. Desperate to get on planes and leave the The
3: Taliban is
1: in control
3: of Afghanistan. The country's president has fled.
0: In these last days of August 2021, the situation in Afghanistan is changing by the hour. Thousands of Afghans are trying to find a safe route out of the country, terrified for what the Taliban might do to
2: them. In this episode, we're going back to understand the origins of the Taliban and what the group's history tells us about the crisis now facing Afghanistan. I've been talking to a couple of Afghan scholars in the past few days about this history. And we're going to start not in the 1990s when the Taliban first emerged, but in the late
1: 1970s. My name is uh, Ali A. Olomi. I am Assistant Professor of History, specialising in the Middle East and Islam at Penn State, uh, Abington. To truly understand them, we have to actually go back to 1978 during the Sour Revolution, which really sets the stage for the chaos that will emerge over the subsequent decades and that the Taliban are emerging as a child of that chaos, trying to address it. For several decades, Afghanistan had been modernizing, building new institutions, uh, really kind of building their infrastructure, and as a result, had relied on foreign aid quite a bit in order to prop itself up. And the two countries that were most eager to get involved were the United States and the Soviet Union, both who had hoped to have some type of foothold in Afghanistan and therefore exert power over Central Asia, South Asia. Um, at the same time, things were kind of going in a different direction in Iran. And so there was a fear that if Iran was lost, then at least we can hold on to Afghanistan. So as a result of this, as a result of foreign aid, what ends up happening is that the government of Afghanistan becomes the primary employer of the country. If you want to get a job, you go and you work for the government. But that meant that your salary wasn't particularly big. And so there's an endemic corruption problem. Every mid-level bureaucrat has to skim a little if he or she is going to survive, be able to feed their family. And this corruption sets the stage for the revolution. At the time, As uh, Afghanistan was modernizing, Kabul University becomes the battleground of ideas. And what will emerge from Kabul University is a group of young activists, uh, political thinkers, journalists, professors, and military commanders who are very interested in Marxist ideas on one end. And on the other end, you'll have a group of Islamists that will emerge who really want to enact a type of a Muslim Brotherhood-style Islamic state. That group will be led by a figure known as Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, really retrograde, reactionary figure. Dawud Khan, the president of Afghanistan, originally allies himself with these young military commanders, these young journalists, these young professors, and he starts to lean a little bit heavily towards the Soviet Union but worried that some type of revolution might happen, he starts to suppress the groups. There's a breaking point in the 70s, and that breaking point will be his undoing. So as a result, what ends up happening is these young military commanders who are all very pro-Marxist, who are all part of this kind of organization, go, we've lost the presidency. Mm. So they tell him, hey, there's danger to you. Please order the tanks to the palace. So he, taking their command, Orders the tanks to Arag Palace, they surround the palace, aim their guns outwards, uh, in order ostensibly to protect the presidency. But at the command of the military commanders, they turn their guns back onto the palace. And a sort of sudden revolution happens, what eventually becomes known as the Saur Revolution in April of 1978. Now, this is quite fascinating because this wasn't as planned. Most of the ideologues of the sort of Marxist group, the People's uh, Democratic Party of Afghanistan, weren't involved. It was the military commanders who went, wait a minute, the president is now taking violent reprisals against our people. We've got to do something. So I often tell students it's the accidental revolution. It just sort of happened. But once it does, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan takes power, establishes the People's Republic of Afghanistan, kills the president, and establishes a Marxist-Leninist government. And from here, the chaos only spirals even further.
2: Okay, so this was in in 1978, got this new Democratic Republic of Afghanistan.
1: Exactly. Um,
2: But as you say, chaos already was spiraling quickly. So what kind of resistance was growing to that new government?
1: Yeah, so the resistance starts a little bit earlier. Um, Back in the Kabul University, these two groups, the Islamist faction and the Marxist-Leninist ideologues are clashing with each other. And when I mean clashing, I mean quite literally. Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who is the leader of that particular uh, faction, the Islamist faction known as hizb uh, will be exiled. And he'll be exiled because he murders one of these young Marxist revolutionaries. He's also a, just a generally reactionary figure. He's a reputed to have carried out acid attacks on women at the university, a very kind of horrible figure. So he's forced into exile into Pakistan. Once this new government is established, the Islamist faction will begin their reprisals against it they will start by attacking civil servants they will start by attacking teachers really kind of agitating it's not a full on resistance yet it's more sort of mob attacks that are happening on the streets here or there meanwhile this new government is needing to consolidate their power and so what they do is they turn on their own allies and start to purge the communist party of afghanistan gets purged the uh, communist thinkers maoist thinkers many of whom are from the Hazara ethnicity, so there is a fixation on the Hazara group here and an an attack on them, leads up to about 20,000 people being arrested, disappeared, or murdered.
2: This is in 1978-79. 1978.
1: So just within the first few months, we're talking a very mass amount of purging. Then they start to turn their attention towards the Islamist groups and every other group. Their repressive tactics is, is so worrying that Brezhnev will actually call up Nur Muhammad Taraki, the new chairman of, of Afghanistan, and say, hey, dude, you've got to stop the reprisals. You are fomenting a resistance. The resistance is starting because you're being violent. At the same time, the United States sees the kind of beginnings of this resistance as an opportunity to build something stronger. Mm. So the United States starts to funnel money to Pakistan's ISI, their intelligence services, who's allied with Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, this reactionary figure, this murderer, the guy who carried out acid attacks. So he ends up becoming the point person for these funds. So at first, the United States is just sort of funneling some funds, giving some symbolic gestures of, yeah, we'll back you. But the people they end up allying with are the most reactionary groups within this slow growing resistance movement, which is really a coalition, not a unified group. And it's from there that we will see an, an organic, as well as an internationally meddled resistance emerge.
2: Okay, and it's this kind of resistance that's commonly known as the known as the Mujahideen.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So the Mujahideen take form slowly, and they're really made up of four different groups. The first is this more organized, Hizb Islami, the more Islamist factions. This will be who the United States allies with. The other group are the leftists. These are the Maoists that got suppressed and purged the Marxist who got screwed over. And then the, the sort of third group of people uh, are military commanders. And then the fourth are just ordinary people. They just pick up arms and they say, we're going to fight against this government. None of these groups fully align politically. The only thing they have in common is resistance towards an oppressive government. And that is what becomes the Mujahideen.
2: Okay. The Soviets make a, a decision. So what then happens? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the Soviet Union finally decides to invade. What ends up happening is the chaos is just too much. There had been an idea that there's something called an Ottoman plan, an idea to establish a semi-neo-Ottoman state in Afghanistan that would be pro-US, pro-West, but would become the center of Islam. So a sort of Islamic state that was friendly to the US, in the same way that the British had done in Saudi Arabia with the Wahhabist state. So they hear word of this. And at this point, they do a sort of cost analysis. And this is too risky for us not to get involved. We know it's going to be a quagmire. We know that it's going to be difficult. We know that at this point, the Mujahideen is a popular resistance movement, ordinary people. We need to get involved anyways. And so they enact what is known as Operation Storm 33. They storm the presidential palace. They kill their one former ally, Hafiz Lameen. They wipe out his family and they establish a more friendly Babrak Karmal. This invasion will then do exactly what the Soviets predicted and escalate the uh, resistance. The Mujahideen now are not just fighting an oppressive government, they're fighting an occupation. And here is when the United States will throw its full backing. funds increase and now training camps established. The United States, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and China will set up training camps and start to fund and support the Mujahideen. Most of this is going to the more organized groups, though. So we should note that not ordinary Afghans aren't getting money from the U.S., they're not getting weapons. That more reactionary, organized element under people like Gulbuddin are the ones that will get the funds.
2: Okay, so we've got this Soviet-occupied Afghanistan, we've got these different Mujahideen yeah. groups getting funding from different, different powers. So yeah. how and where did the Taliban emerge from this um, moment?
1: Yeah, so this quagmire is the kind of beginnings to some extent of the Taliban. So the founder of uh, the Taliban, Mullah Omar, is a mujahideen himself. He's part of this group who's fighting against the Soviets. He's allied with Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. He wants to establish an Islamic state. So part of the thing that ends up happening is that the Mujahideen commanders, several of the more powerful ones, become warlords. These warlords are corrupt. They end up relying on those foreign aid to establish their own wealthy power bases. They violently end up shelling Kabul. Uh, tens of thousands are killed in the shelling of Kabul. So there's this violence of a war. But there's also a sexual component. There is sexual violence that has become rampant amongst these powerful elites, as we often find with powerful people. And he sees this corruption and he goes, this is not what we fought for. We fought to establish an Islamic state this is not what we wanted. And so he will turn to Pakistan, where the second generation of young Afghans have grown up in refugee camps, going to various madrasas, being trained in a particular brand of Islamic ideology known as Deobandi. He will draw them into the fold and formally establish the Taliban in 1993-94. Now, it's very clear. While some of the old Taliban commanders did fight in the Mujahideen War, the Taliban are not the Mujahideen. They're technically the second generation with some minor overlap between the two groups. In actuality, the Taliban end up fighting the Mujahideen. Tell
2: me a bit more about those refugee camps and what it was like in in the 90s
1: when that movement grew. When the Soviets invaded, a lot of Afghans were displaced. And even to this day, the largest population of Afghan refugees are in Pakistan. They still live in Pakistan. They are raised in these refugee camps, experiencing displacement, hunger, scarcity. And along comes charismatic preachers who say, come join the madrasa. We'll give you food. We'll give you shelter. We'll give you a purpose. And so it's a very attractive offer. And it's in these madrasas that they will be trained in the ideology of jihadism.
2: This was happening in the early 1990s. So it's often said that the Taliban's origins are in Kandahar, a province in southern Afghanistan. But what you're saying is that it's actually more complicated than that.
1: Exactly. So Kandahar becomes the base in which the Taliban will grow. And Mullah Omar is in Kandahar, but who he draws from is from those refugee camps. And the U.S. will in many ways radicalize some of these refugees because the U.S. will will spend millions of dollars developing these textbooks with the University of Nebraska, ostensibly to teach children how to read and write and count and whatnot. But the textbooks are designed with the idea of training patriotic fighters. So what ends up happening is the language of militaristic patriotism that we find in American discourse, right? Fight for your country, die for your country, self-sacrifice. That is entirely foreign to the concept of jihad. There's a famous CIA text that I tweeted out where they complain that Afghans just don't fight that way. They'll fight fiercely, but when tea time comes around, they'll throw down their guns and they'll they'll have tea. That they're more than willing to hang out with their enemies, (laughs) And so the U.S. is frustrated by this. And so it introduces this language of militaristic patriotism into these textbooks, which get into the refugee camps. So these textbooks teach children how to count by counting grenades and bombs and swords. And they teach them how to read with phrases that say, this is a sword. My uncle uses this sword to chop off the heads of the Russians. But in so many ways, the Taliban will be born out of this conflation of forces. Displacement, the experience of being refugees, the exploitation by these madrasas that say, hey, we will give you security and purpose. And then those textbooks that radicalize them even further. This is one of the reasons why the Mujahideen never carry out suicide bombings. The first suicide bombing in Afghanistan is in 2001, after the second generation had been fully radicalized.
2: So how does that, I guess, fairly small group of people who from those refugee camps and those madrasas, how does that become a, a bigger force that ends up taking over the country?
1: One of the, the keys to the Taliban success is they offer an alternative to what was going on. They say, look, look around. The mujahideen who had fought heroically to liberate your country have now turned it into a war zone. They're shelling Kabul. They're carrying out violent acts of reprisal against each other. They're living in these corrupt palaces. Um, we offer stability we offer security. We offer the alternative. We will end that. We will end the drug trade. We will end the human trafficking trade. We will end the corruption. And it ends up becoming popular. What people forget is that early on, the Taliban were a sort of welcome moment of relief for some cities, for some villages. And there will be some instances in which villages will reach out to the Taliban and say, we need help. The local warlord has been doing this. Can you come and help us? And the Taliban's initial message is one of security and stability. I wouldn't say that they were popular, but they were an alternative. The other thing that they end up doing is that they're very good at recruiting. Where they go, they recruit local people, kind of force them into their ranks, or they they manipulate them, or they offer them, or they kind of give them a little bit of a bribe, and it works. They did the exact same thing in the 2000s. They replicated that technique with the added addition of emptying out the prisons. Empty out the prisons, bolster your ranks. So they did this. Every village they went, they added a little bit more, added a little bit more. Meanwhile, the Mujahideen are fighting against each other. These warlords are attacking each other. They're not realizing that this group is growing and growing until they're right on Kobol's doorstep. And initially, they are in many ways not welcome, but a sort of sigh of relief. And so this is why I'm always very hesitant about what people going have the Taliban change. When they first arrived under the scene, they offered security stability and they said we're not going to take any violent reprisals. It took a year before they started to institute restrictions on women, banning of music, doing all sorts of oppressive things.
2: Well, thank you so much, Ali, for helping us understand that history.
1: Thank you. So
0: Ali's taken us up to the mid-1990s. That's when the Taliban made it to Kabul and seized power.
2: And they stayed in power until 2001, when the U.S. led an invasion of Afghanistan in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. To understand more about the next part of the Taliban's history, we called up another Afghan researcher based in Melbourne, Australia.
3: My name is Dr. Neymetullah Ibrahimi, and I am currently a lecturer in international relations at Latrobe University here in Australia. And my research focuses on Afghanistan. I have looked at the dynamics of the insurgency and state building since 2001 in Afghanistan.
2: We want to start off by asking you about the Taliban. They got into Kabul and then they took power in 1996 in, in a violent way. What were those five years like when they were in power between 1996 and 2001?
3: Well, I, I lived part of those uh, years in Afghanistan, and I witnessed firsthand how the Taliban ruled the country. Uh, to begin with, the Taliban didn't establish uh, modern institutions of governance that you would expect would be necessary for governing a complex society like Afghanistan. And instead, uh, they used the instrument of state to divide the power among its various factions and and members and try to impose its will on the Afghan society. We should also remember that until the very end, 2001, the Taliban did not achieve complete military victory in Afghanistan. There were pockets of resistance in many provinces of Afghanistan. They were losing territories and then regaining territories. As a result of this, it remained a fighting force. It never transitioned from being a militia group to forming a government, a functioning set of institutions, even in places like Kabul. However, you know, some of the institutions they established, we know quite well. One of them was the most wise and virtue police, uh, the police, Amr al Bilmaruf, al Nahya al Munkar, as they're called. And these police are known for their brutalities in enforcing their version of Sharia on the Afghans, especially women. So the Taliban are remembered now with uh, executions of women and and other uh, members of the society and public places like stadiums. They banned and prohibited music photography. Um, They turned the... I found radio network um, into a mouthpiece of the propaganda calling it Radio Sharia. song of the Taliban from 1996 to 2001 is one in which there is no video, no photography, no art. Um, They destroyed famously the Buddha statues of Bamiyan.
4: ...of enlightenment to Buddhists, cultural wonders of the world. The Buddhas and thousands of other Afghan relics are now being obliterated by the Taliban's latest war.
3: Such a monumental, important heritage of Afghanistan's civilizational past. And they also engage in mass killings of um, the Shia Hazaras. Local
2: leaders claim in their first five months of rule, the Taliban executed up to 15,000 Hazaras.
3: One of the most important of which is uh, August 1998, they went on a campaign of killing primarily the Hazaras. that was described by Ahmad Rashid as genocidal and it is ferocity. So you've talked about what life was like
2: for people are under the Taliban in that period, they declared themselves as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Who recognized them outside of the country?
3: The, the Taliban never achieved any significant level of international legitimacy. So after they achieved a control of the northern city of Mazar-e-Sharif in August of 1998, three countries extended diplomatic recognition to the Taliban. These were Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. So they were a kind of pariah state,
2: and then the war began in, in 2001, led by the US and, and NATO forces. What's happened to the Taliban broadly in that 20-year period?
3: By the end of uh, 2001, following the US military intervention, the Taliban regime, the Taliban as a movement disintegrated. And that explains also in important ways how vulnerable, how fragile the movement was because it did not enjoy a lot of popular legitimacy in Afghanistan. Some of the Taliban stayed in Afghanistan. There were others who fled to Pakistan. And during this period, uh, there is this complex environment in which different actors try to realign their position with the United States intervention in Afghanistan. Initially, all of those countries supported the intervention, including Iran, which had a lot of other conflicts with the United States elsewhere, but they found a common interest in Afghanistan. But the only country that was not very happy with the fall of the Taliban was Pakistan, because they saw with the fall of the Taliban, they were also losing influence in Afghanistan. Uh, So, as a result of that, we see for the subsequent years, many Taliban find sanctuaries in Pakistan. Uh, from 2004 and five onwards, they start reorganizing as an insurgency, attacking local security forces and government installations across Afghanistan. And the Taliban leadership continues to enjoy protection and, uh, and safety in Pakistan. So... What happened to the leadership at that period and who was in
2: charge of the Afghan Taliban?
3: Well, the Afghan Taliban was nominally led by Mullah Muhammad Umar. Uh, He remained uh, in hiding uh, until it was discovered in 2013 that he had passed away in uh, some secret locations. So after that, the Taliban uh, entered into a period of power struggle. They had a succession of leadership. Uh, One of those leaders was uh, Akhtar Muhammad Mansour, one of the key leaders in the movement. He was assassinated in a drone strike. He was succeeded by uh, someone called uh, Hibatullah Khunzada, who is the current leader of the Taliban. However, it is important to know that there are different networks within the Taliban. Uh, one of the most important one is the Haqqani Network, uh, which operated mainly out of the Waziristan region in Pakistan. Uh, and it has the closest links with international jihadist groups and also the greatest capability to launch sophisticated violent attacks in places like uh, Kabul in, in recent years. So there are the different networks, some of them are based in the western province of Afghanistan. They are reportedly much closer to Iranians, and there are others who are much closer to pakistan and there 's also
2: a separate group of of people who 've been in Qatar in recent years who 've been leading
3: negotiations. These are groups of people who are given an office in Qatar, however there is an important question to be asked to what extent this so-called political Taliban in Doha are representative of the other factions of the Taliban, especially the Taliban commanders in the ground. So as a result of this, there are important differences in the way the messages of the Taliban come from Doha, especially the media savvy, well-trained Taliban members who have Perfected the art of propaganda and communication in recent years, while at the same time you also see other Taliban in the ground, people who have seized control of territories, commanders who are exercising control uh, over the way the movement runs. It is um, operation on a day-to-day basis at the
2: local level. They've been gaining strength both politically and kind of militarily in in, in the last few years. So. Where have they been getting their money from and the support that comes with that?
3: The Taliban being a very mysterious, secretive group, we do not know very much about the details of their finance. According to the United Nations, they have been raising a lot of revenues through the trafficking and trade of According to reports, Taliban terrorists get
4: 60% of their income from opium and heroin trade in Afghanistan, and the illegal trade is only booming.
3: And at the same time, they have been receiving support from other jihadist groups, some uh, rich fundamentalist groups in the Gulf region, and they have also been taxing the local population where they have lived quite heavily. So uh, in recent years, as they have expanded the areas of their control in Afghanistan, they have also diversified their source of revenues. We know f- uh, for many years now, according to many reports, that the Taliban were also benefiting from some of the construction and development assistance that were allocated at the subnational level in Afghanistan. They were um, intimidating and harassing uh, local contractors and subcontractors, and for these groups to operate one way was always to bribe the Taliban, share a uh, part of their revenues with the Taliban locally. So as a result of this, the Taliban have you know very diverse range of revenue sources. But now that the Taliban is in control of Afghanistan, it transitions to becoming a government in Afghanistan, uh, they face quite an important set of challenges, whether they will be able to raise regulated, legitimate and institutionalized revenues that will be different from the war and criminal economy on which they were so heavily dependent in recent years. You mentioned there that they had support from some jihadi
2: groups, but it's not all jihadist groups, is it?
3: Well, the Taliban have historically had very complex relationship with other jihadist groups uh, internationally. Uh, this is an issue that I have dealt with uh, in an article which was published by the Journal of Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, which I co-authored with my colleague, uh, Shahram Akbar And In that article, we have argued that the Taliban have tended to suppress those groups in Afghanistan that have tended to challenge its either ideological or political hegemony under its control. But at the same time, they have allowed other groups to operate in the areas that are more supportive. They provide some critical support to the Taliban, either in the form of manpower, the training of its fighters, donations. But, you know, the local uh, affiliate of the Islamic State, which is called the Islamic State Khorasan, has had this very tough relationship with the Taliban. Some sections of the Taliban have been drawn to it. Uh, there are even reports that in some areas in Afghanistan they have been collaborating. But in other areas where the Islamic State affiliate in Afghanistan pose a direct challenge to the Taliban's control of territories, or local resources, uh, they were also facing with a very violent response by the Taliban as well.
2: In February 2020, the Trump administration signed a peace agreement with the Taliban. The
4: United States and the Taliban have signed an agreement aimed at ending nearly two decades of conflict in Afghanistan. Both sides inked the deal in Qatar's capital, Doha, following a year and a half of talks.
2: Which the Biden administration then chose to, to honour um, earlier this year. What led to that agreement and, and what can we learn from it for, for what Afghanistan is facing at this point?
3: Well, the February 2020 agreement which the United States signed with the Taliban was a fundamentally flawed agreement that really is responsible for the speed with which the Afghan government disintegrated and the speed with, with which the Taliban gained not only military ground but also international diplomatic legitimacy. This is an agreement that effectively sidelined the government of Afghanistan by accepting to uh, enter into a deal with the Taliban in which the nationally representative government of Afghanistan, however imperfect, corrupt, inefficient it was, uh, the United States sent a very strong signal to the groups in Afghanistan but also the countries in that region. We should remember that until 2020, many countries in the region were very cautious about their approach towards the Taliban. The Taliban was still seen as a terrorist group that would pose threats to others. Some countries obviously had established very strong um, covert links with the Taliban. But internationally, it was very rare for the Taliban leadership to appear in national capitals of any country in that region. But subsequently, Following from that agreement, we see the Taliban leaders from Doha uh, appearing in national capitals, in Tehran, in Moscow, in Central Asian states, in Pakistan, in China, and all of those other countries. In in, in a way, extending a de facto recognition to the Taliban, while at the same time weakening the, the, the legitimacy and credibility of the Afghan government, was really, I think, a key factor. I think one important factor we should always keep in mind is the psychology. In a country like Afghanistan, as heavily dependent on international aid as it is, uh, and where people have been through several cycles of insecurity and instability, people are very, very conscious about changes in the political and psychological climate. And I suspect that in recent months and weeks that many groups locally saw that the United States was leaving and they were uh, uh, having increasing doubts about the capacity of the Afghan government to survive. They also established links with the Taliban. So that explains, I think, uh, for me, uh, how the Taliban spread their uh, influence in Afghanistan locally. Because the Taliban, we should remember, is not a very popular force even now in Afghanistan. Uh, if you look at the Asia Foundation Survey of the Afghan People in 2019, 85% of the Afghan respondents said they had no sympathy whatsoever for the Taliban. So it's a really, really powerful indication of how the Taliban is unpopular locally in the eyes of the Afghans. But at the same time, locally, many of those Afghans are also really concerned about their safety and survival. So for reasons of survival and uh, and their s- safety, many people might just engage in tactical and pragmatic relationship with the Taliban, the overall effect of which can be the strengthening of the Taliban and the weakening of the Afghan government.
2: What impact more generally do you think that the, the US-led intervention and um, military presence in, in Afghanistan has had on the Taliban and its ideology? Has it changed from the 90s because of what's happened in the last 20 years?
3: The impact of the U.S. intervention on the Taliban has been profound. For the first time, the Taliban found itself in a fight with a very major uh, technologically advanced power like the United States. Uh, So as a result of this, to fight back they also needed to adapt to the challenging circumstances. And I think one of those really important adaptations by the Taliban is their appropriation of uh, a very effective public relations campaign, propaganda, uh, You know, something that is mirroring, I think, the United States military and NATO military forces information operations in places like Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban are now a lot more technologically savvy, but at the same time, whether the Taliban have changed in any of those important elements that I mentioned earlier, ideology, their visions for the governance of Afghanistan, I have very serious doubts about it.
1: Senior Taliban leaders have spent the week in negotiations. They say they want an inclusive government.
3: So far, what I'm seeing is uh, that the propaganda wing of the Taliban have been quite effective in telling the world what it hears at the moment, seeking to embrace changes. But at the same time, they have remained deliberately, consistently wake over many years on... Their position on critical issues, whether they have any flexibility on the rights of women, on freedom of expression, and whether they are really seen uh, ready to be part of a, a government in which they are. Uh, you know, one player among others, and there are differences of views, uh, and different groups in that system represents uh, the diverse groups of Afghanistan. Uh, and for me, I would like to be uh, pessimistic, uh, unless I see evidence is coming that prove me wrong, and I would be quite happy to see that. Well, thank you so much. It's been fantastic talking with you and getting that that
2: context and history to understand what's happening today on the ground in a very fast moving situation so we appreciate you talking to us
3: a pleasure Jima. thank you
0: the headlines on stories covering the current situation in afghanistan are focused on today what happened yesterday and maybe at most a couple years ago but this history seems really important
2: yeah definitely and that's something that ali alomi said to me actually he said those people who are surprised by the taliban's quick takeover of afghanistan are only surprised because they don't know this history, and it's a history of violence, of corruption, and imperial meddling.
0: You can also check out Ali Olomi's own podcast, Head on History, for his own analysis.
2: To end this week's episode, we're sticking with The Conversation's global coverage of events in Afghanistan. Here's a message with some recommended reading from Leanne Goodman, politics editor at The Conversation in Toronto. This is Leanne Goodman. I'm a politics editor for The Conversation based in Toronto,
4: Canada. My first recommendation for a story on the troubling events in Afghanistan is by Lucia Baldanian of Ryerson University in Toronto. It's a scary, shocking piece about how the Taliban has likely captured the biometric data of Afghans who helped the United States during the war. It illustrates how governments and international organizations aren't truly able to securely collect and use biometric data in conflict zones. And Lucia argues that until those assurances can be made, biometric data must not be collected in conflict zones, or else lives will be put at risk, as they most certainly have in Afghanistan. The other story I recommend is one that stayed with me since I first began editing it. If you're a mother of daughters, a sister, a niece, an aunt, as I am, it will stay with you too. It's written by Vrinda Narain of McGill University, a board member of the Transnational Solidarity Network, Women Living Under Muslim Laws. Vrinda wrote about how the Taliban has asked the leaders of religious orders to provide a list of women and girls over the age of 15 for the purposes of forcing them into marriage, or to use a more accurate term, sexual slavery. Slavery. Not surprisingly, this has terrified women and their families, forcing them to flee and join the ranks of internally displaced persons all over Afghanistan. That's it from me. Don't miss these important stories.
2: Leanne Goodman in Toronto there. You can find some links to the stories that she's mentioned in our show notes, where you'll also find some other analysis from researchers around the world on the evolving situation in Afghanistan. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and also to Nemat Biza. And thanks to the conversation editors, Justin Bergman, Catesby Holmes and Stephen Kahn, and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion.
0: You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free daily email by clicking on the link in the show notes.
2: If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to.
0: And please tell your friends and family about the show, especially those who might not have ever listened to a podcast before.
2: The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marijuani and me, GemmaWare, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sahl.
0: And I'm Dan Marino. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next week.